This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, is out this week. So if you could hold off on those pet questions, and we'll get Dr. Major back in uh, to uh, take those at a, on a later show. Today in studio, though, we do welcome back Paul Hartfield, endangered species biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who's also Libby's husband. Together, they've had several encounters with wild. So we'll talk about their latest adventure and the mighty Mississippi River. The Mississippi River is one of the most engineered river systems on Earth, but has many parts that are highly productive as a natural system. We'll talk about the least turn bird and the now increasing populations. Join our conversation with your phone call. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464 or email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you ever miss Creature Comforts, we always like to remind you that if you miss the Thursday broadcast, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning to you both. Hope that you're doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Libby, you've been out, uh, and we've been out of the studio for some time, but uh, how were things How are things going? You took, I guess, uh, both of you took what looked like a real exciting uh, cross-country trip. So tell us a little bit about that. We did. We, we flew to our daughters in Oregon and drove back and did kind of a southern route, and we've been wanting to go to Death Valley, and this is the time to go if you want to go, and it was absolutely beautiful and wonderful place to be, and I guess the big event there was seeing the endangered pupfish. Okay. And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a strange thing, I guess, to go to a desert, an incredibly arid area to look for a fish, but that's what we did, and we did see one. And they live in the very bottom of Death Valley in small springs flowing through those salt flats that you see on TV. So it's a, a really, really, really harsh environment. So, Paul, what were some of the other states that you all went through and, and visited on your trip? Uh, we went through um, uh, eastern California, which is where a place we've never been, northeastern California. And we found that it's just empty of people <laughs> and beautiful scenery. And then we uh, went into Nevada. Again, very empty state, but uh, gorgeous scenery, very dry. And then on our way back, we pushed through um, Arizona and stopped by the Grand Canyon and um, uh, where else? The Painted Desert. That was great. Painted Desert, yeah. So we had a great trip. Uh, So, Libby, do you have uh, any um, upcoming events that you want to talk about? I do have a few, yes. Uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast Audubon, you know, they always have these wonderful field trips, and I wish I was going to be down there this Saturday because, um, and this one starts at noon, so you don't have to be an early riser. Uh, It's a boat trip on uh, Grand Base. And uh, they'll go to the near. Mark Woodry is leading the trip. This is one that you do need to get online and register because there's just a limited amount of space on the boats. So um, you can get online at the Gulf Coast Audubon or uh, Grand Bay Savannah Near, N-E-E-R, and register to go on that birding trip. And then... um, Closer to the Jackson area, the Clinton Nature Center uh, will do their Deck the Halls, which is uh, really Deck the Trails. I guess I said Deck the Halls, but it's Deck the Trails. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, lighting and all kinds of fun outside on their trails, and that's going to be December 13, 15. 
through the 15th, that weekend, and then the weekend of the 20th through the 23rd. And then uh, the Museum of Natural Science here in Jackson, the dinosaurs leave. Their last day is January the 5th. But there are lots of fun opportunities to see them in a, a Christmas environment. And then there's even going to be a big New Year's Eve family party there. So we can talk more about that later. And the gift shop's doing an open house next Saturday. And then a biggie we've talked about on this show for years now about the Christmas bird counts. Mm-hmm. And they are going on in places all over the state. If you would like to be involved in a Christmas bird count, it's a fun thing to do. You don't have to be a birding expert. They'll put you with somebody. Most counts are all organized in such a way that they can pair new birders with um, some people who know exactly what they're doing. And uh, you get to contribute important information to science and um, have a good time. Um, By the way, we have some exciting news, addition to the Creature Comforts uh, program, um, and that is Bird Note. So every, you know, if you listen to the program, you know that we always try to take a break around the 930 mark. Uh, and we're adding Bird Note. It's a 90-second program produced by a passionate group of individuals dedicated to birds and the environment. You can visit their website at birdnote.org. But stay tuned because this morning is our first uh, episode with Bird Note, as I said, a new addition to Creature Comforts. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, not ready for a break yet, but we do have some open phone lines. So if you have maybe uh, an adventure story that you'd like to share about the Mississippi River or a question about the river that maybe our guest Paul Hartfield could answer for you, uh, give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can always email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Paul, how long have you been studying the Mississippi River? Uh, I've been actively working on the Mississippi River since 2000, so that's 19 years, I guess. Uh, but Lydia and I have been recreating on the river uh, since the late 70s, I believe. So okay. we've we've been out there about 40 years. And sort of in general, I mean, I know you can't get too specific, but how how have how has it changed in in those 40 years? Do you think? Um, it hasn't changed a whole lot in terms of physically the. Um, over time, the river's uh, much cleaner now than it was 40 or 50 years ago. Clean Water Act has really done marvels out there. So we've got a very, very clean river. A lot of people still think of it as polluted, but it's really not polluted. Um, in fact, it might be some of the cleanest water in the state of Mississippi. Uh, so it's very clean. Now, what has changed is the frequency and the duration of flooding over the last decade has uh, changed significantly in the uh, 80 years prior to um, 2000, we had, I think, three or four major floods. In the last 11 years alone, we've had four major floods. So we've gone from a flood uh, frequency of a major flood once every 20 years to a major flood every two or three years. And it's, it's I'm sure everybody was aware of the one this year. Mm-hmm. This year, not only did we have a major flood, but it lasted from January into August. So that was wow. uh, unheard of. Yeah. And is it just changing na- the natural world changing? It, 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 um, if you look at something like that, I think it's pretty apparent to me. Uh, uh, it's my opinion that it is climate change, that uh, things have changed drastically. There's a lot of people blaming the Corps of Engineers for the increased uh, flood frequency. But when you consider that the major things that they did to accelerate 
the movement of water to reduce flood frequency uh, really worked wonders in that first 80 years. And suddenly, those very same things that reduce flooding, now people are saying are increasing flooding in the last decade. And uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me. All right, why don't we go ahead? We'll take our first break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion throughout the hour with our guest, Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Dr. Major's out today, so hold off on your pet questions if you would. But as I mentioned, if you have an encounter with the Mississippi River that you'd like to share with us or so a question, uh, you can give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. Contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield and our guest today, Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Dr. Major's out, so if you would hold off your pet questions, but we're looking for your comments and questions this morning about the Mississippi River. And, you know, uh, if you've had ever had an encounter with the Mississippi River, spent time on there, a brush with wildlife, anything to do with the river, a story that you'd like to share, we'd certainly love to hear that this morning. So give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven. MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Paul, we mentioned you're an endangered species biologist. If you would give us an idea of what the type of work you do with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Sure. Um, I try to figure out what is endangered or rare in, uh, in the state of Mississippi primarily, uh, but I also do a lot of work in other states as well. Uh, once I decide something might actually be rare, I need to figure out why. Is it naturally rare, or is there some reason it has declined? And if, if it has declined, uh, is it to the point where the animal might become extinct in the foreseeable future? And then to identify what it is that threatens the species. Eventually, if, if it, everything appears that this is truly an endangered or threatened species, then I must... Uh, do a proposal, a federal regulation to to make a law to make the species uh, uh, officially an endangered species. So that then begins a very intense paperwork process and a series of public hearings quite often uh, to get a species on the list. And then once it's on the list, it's protected primarily um, through prohibiting certain acts and then by uh, focusing the attention of all federal agencies uh, on um, trying to improve its condition. And so how often is the list reviewed? In other words, I think we're going to talk about the, the least turn here uh, this hour, and you both were telling me that that's a success story and that it's the, the, the populations are on the rebound. So how often are uh, creatures on the list sort of revisited to, to check the progress of how well things are going along? Actually, by law, we're required to revisit their status every five years. Um, so at, at that time, we make recommendations. We assess the information to see if it's still complete. Is there anything new that changes the status of the species? And then make recommendations going forward to either keep it on the list, delist or downlist, uh, elevated if it's a threatened species, it might become an endangered species. 
and then a series of recommendations for recovery actions. Now, I'm sure you don't do this all, all by yourself. No. <laughs> how big of, a, of a, a staff or how big uh, of a group do you work with to do this sort of work? I think here in Jackson, we have about 20 folks. Um, four or five of us are devoted specifically to endangered species, uh, generally uh, by faunal groups, plants. Uh, for example, I'm an invertebrate biologist, but yet I still have the least turn on my list. I deal with that. And I also deal with uh, sturgeon, pallid sturgeon, and I used to deal with Alabama sturgeon, but I no longer do that. So uh, most of my animals are invertebrates, and the others, we have a herpetologist. Uh, We had a fisheries person, but he has retired. Uh, And then we have other staff that are devoted to um, uh, working on other aspects of of laws dealing with... um, uh, the environment that the Fish and Wildlife Service is tasked to do. So, you know, recently we've talked about the Pearl River Keeper Group, and so we've been recently have talked about the Pearl River, and that's certainly a jewel of Mississippi, but the mighty Mississippi River. So what makes the Mississippi mighty, do you think? Well, it's a lot bigger. <laughs> that's the main thing. And um, just thinking about the Pearl, that's interesting, because I was looking at it this year from uh, river stages. I had some some things jotted down, and Libby's always telling me, compare the Mississippi to other things that people might understand better. Like one of the typical things is to say, well, the discharge is equal to a 1,000 swimming Olympic-sized swimming pools. In this case, much more than that. But let's compare it to the Pearl River today. Um, the Today, the Pearl River is flowing at about 4,000 cubic feet per second. That's a cubic foot of water. 4,000 cubic feet are passing you every second if you stand That's a on lot the bank. of water. That's a lot of water. Today, the Mississippi River is flowing at 1 million oh, wow. cubic feet per second. <laughs> so it's really tough. That's the, quite a lot it's more a, water. <laughs> it's a lot. Pearl River flood stage here in Mississippi, I believe, is around 20,000 cubic feet per second. On the Mississippi, it's a million cubic feet per second. So we're right at flood stage on the Mississippi right now. Um the low flow of the Mississippi River is about 600,000 cubic feet per second. The low flow of the Pearl River is about 200 cubic feet per second. <laughs> so hopefully that puts a little perspective to you. So it's, a, it's, the, it's the largest river in the nation. I believe it's the fourth largest in the world. Hmm. So it's a world-class river. It's, it's, I like to call it, I describe it as Mississippi's Grand Canyon. And now that I've been to the Grand Canyon, I can tell you it's not nearly as breathtaking. <laughs> but it is equally in terms of a, of a geographic, geologic feature. It is equally important. And, in fact, it may it's much more important to the nation, to the nation's economy, than Grand Canyon is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. So why don't we say good morning to James, who's called in from Picayune today. James, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Good morning. Uh you had mentioned earlier that the Mississippi is less polluted than it was back in the 70s, which makes sense. But uh, we've heard a lot over the last several years about the fertilizer load in the Mississippi River and how that gets uh, emptied out into the Gulf of Mexico. And at times like this uh, past year when, um, you know, the Bonacary Spillway is opened, a lot of that uh, water comes into Mississippi Sound. So could you comment about uh, the trend over time in terms of uh, fertilizer and nutrients in the Mississippi River and the and whether the uh, 
Army Corps of Engineers decisions about uh, flood control, what the impact they have on Mississippi Sound? Those are great questions, James, and uh, and I'm really glad you brought up the nutrients and and the Gulf dead zone. That's the source of the dead zone in the Gulf. I'm sure everybody's heard about that. That's a large area at the mouth of the Mississippi that extends uh, west and along the coast of Louisiana and even into Texas, uh, where uh, there's just it becomes pretty much devoid of life on the bottom of the river. Uh, there's almost no ox- dissolved oxygen at the bottom, and that's why everything dies. That's why it's called a dead zone. The reason for that, as you correctly stated, are agricultural nutrients primarily coming down the Mississippi River and being discharged in the Gulf of Mississippi. This reflects two things. One is uh, it reflects the loss of the wetlands along the Mississippi River. We've lost about 90% of the swamps and bayous and the connectedness to those swamps and bayous along the Mississippi River uh, due to the construction of the mainline levees to prevent flooding of the Mississippi alluvial plain. The, the plain used to process those nutrients and hold them back. And today, even if you go out there into the little bit of floodplain that's left on the river, I love to take people out there and show them that the muddy water running into the top of a back swamp during flood stage and then you go to the bottom where the water runs back into the Mississippi River from the back swamp in just a, a few hundred meters or, or less than a mile length. That water goes in muddy and comes out very, very clear, a marked difference. So that's what floodplains and swamps used to do. Now, they would clear this stuff up. Now, of course, we've also had a, a huge increase in farming. Now, again, one of the positive things is that over the past three decades, uh, four decades, farmers have gotten really, really good at keeping those nutrients on their field. We still get a lot of them, particularly in super wet years like this past, like this year. Uh, And yeah, we had a huge dead zone this year because of all that flooding and even uh, had some dead zones in the Mississippi Sound, I believe, because of the, the unprecedented double opening and the duration of the opening of the Bonacary Spillway. But in terms of the Mississippi River, these these nutrients, they're generally um, inorganic nitrogen and phosphorus that are bound to um, um, sediments. And so they do very little harm. They don't, they don't kill fish by themselves. What happens is when the water clears up and you have the nutrients, that's what causes the, the dead zone because as the sunlight can penetrate, algae eats those nutrients and they go, they have a huge burst of productivity and death that comes along with the productivity. And those uh, newly dead algae fall to the bottom of the, of the gulf and decompose and that's what takes the oxygen out of the water. So the nutrients have no effect on our river because of the sediment and because of the, the turbidity. And, you know, a lot of people think of, of turbidity and sediment as a pollution. In fact, my agency has promoted this for 50 years, that sediment is a, is a huge pollutant. And it is in many circumstances. But sediment is a very, very important of most riverine ecosystems, uh, particularly turbid, naturally turbid systems like the Missouri River used to be and like the Mississippi River still is, although it's not nearly as turbid as it used to be. On the contrary... Other rivers in the in our state, for example, the Pearl River, and in fact the the Yazoo and the Delta, um, 
the um, Big Sunflower River, those were tra traditionally clear water systems, very, very clear water. And um, today, they're very, very turbid, as, as anybody knows who's ever been on them. So a lot of things have changed. Um, I think I covered most of it, didn't I, Kevin? You did. Thank you. All okay. right. Thanks, James. A good thought-provoking question there. We're visiting today on Creature Comforts with Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service talking about the Mississippi River and looking for your calls. If you've ever had a brush with wildlife or an adventure on the river that you'd like to share with us, you can call in at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So uh, we talked about the length of the Mississippi River being one of the, the world's longest rivers. What about width and depth of the river, Paul? Well, uh, that varies, obviously, depending upon where you are. Here in, in uh, our part of the river, uh, it may vary from a, a half a mile wide to um, a little over a mile wide. Of course, here in flood stage, it's as wide as, as the levees are far <laughs> apart. Uh, so it can be pretty, uh, it can get pretty wide. Um, the depth is very interesting. There are some natural features on the river. This, this is a huge volume of water, you know, 600,000 to a million CFS, pretty constantly going down a river channel. Even though there's not that much slope, it's the sheer weight of the water behind it that pushes it along that can cause some incredible things to happen. And um, we've got places where we have natural outcrops of bedrock, uh, fault, zone, fault lines, fault zones, geologic fault zones along the river. And uh, I'd say an average depth would be, uh, on, the, on the deepest part of the river, would be 40 to 50 feet. But then you have places where you hit these, these walls, and then below the walls, the, the current, it's like an underwater waterfall, and they scour the river out to over 100 feet deep. Hmm. Um, in many cases, uh, 20, 30, or more feet below sea level. Uh, even up here, uh, one such area is right there at Vicksburg below the bridge, below the, the uh, I-20 I bridge. That's a, a very deep hole, over 100 feet deep, and below sea level. And then another one is, is just upstream, about three miles. That one's, uh, man, that thing, can, that can, thing can be well over 100 feet. That's where a fault line is. So you, you find these things all along the river. Once you get down below... Baton Rouge, um, the whole river, pretty much the bottom of the river, and, and below the old river control structure, the Atchafalaya, the bottom of the Atchafalaya, and then the Mississippi River below Baton Rouge, all of that is below sea level. Uh, in many cases, 40, 50, 60, 80 feet below sea level. Mm. So uh, that's a lot of water going down there. Now, is it true that in the, I guess, the headwaters of the river, if I'm using that term correctly, up in Minnesota, that you can actually step across the Mississippi River. That's what I've heard. I've never been up there. The, the river, uh, I believe, really originates in Lake Itasca, drainage from Lake Itasca. But the, that drainage, I think, is what you can step across. I don't think you can step across the lake. Uh, and I'm sure you can find small tribs draining into the lake that you could easily step across, um, which would also be headwaters of the Mississippi River. But it flows about 2,500 miles from Lake Atasca to the Gulf Coast. And it goes through 10 states along that way. Um, so you talked about the, the flow of the river. So, I mean, is it ever possible to swim in the Mississippi River? Oh, yeah, people swim all the time. Um, swimming, uh, I can remember 
40 years ago when uh, locals along the river would swim and about every few uh, every year you would get a record of a drowning somebody had stepped off and gotten caught in a current undertow and drowned so it's it's a place you want to know what you're doing when you're swimming there are a lot of safe places to swim though uh, particularly in secondary channels and off of sandbars but you have to be very careful when you're out there swimming because it can grab you that's a that's a, a, a not a fast current, but it's a, a strong current, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Stephanie's on the line from Gulfport. Stephanie, we'll get to your call after this break. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. And during this break, it's our new feature, Bird Note. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, so stay tuned. This is Bird Note. If you're not deep in the world of board games, you might be surprised to learn that one, there's fierce competition for the prestigious Board Game of the Year award, and two, this year's winner is Wingspan, a game about birds. Everything in Wingspan revolves around a deck of 170 beautifully illustrated bird cards. The goal is to attract birds to your aviary by collecting things that they like to eat. Your birds are worth points, and they get you more points when they lay eggs, gather food, or do other bird things. Elizabeth Hargrave, the designer of Wingspan, wanted it to be fun and scientifically accurate. Each card is packed with information about a given bird, including aspects of its behavior. Brown-headed cowbirds are nest parasites. They lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and I really wanted to somehow make that come true in the game. So if you have a brown-headed cowbird, whenever another player's bird lays eggs, your brown-headed cowbird also gets to lay an egg. The blue jay gets you points by stashing away food for the winter. Endangered species, like the California condor, let you draw special bonus cards. As you study your bird's powers and strategize your next move, you're getting a stealth ecology lesson. You can hear the full story about Wingspan on our podcast, BirdNote Presents, or on our website, birdnote.org. I'm Mark Bramhill. For more great stories, check out the podcast Today Explained from the Vox Media Podcast Network a daily news show that helps you actually understand the news. Subscribe to it for free in your favorite podcast app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest today is Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And today we've been talking about the Mississippi River. We've got a call on the line. Stephanie graciously held through the break for us. So, Stephanie, you're on the air with us now, so go ahead, please. 
Yes, thank you. Um, you know, many of us have heard about the three islands of trash floating in the ocean that are bigger than the size of Texas. Um, that got me wondering, how bad is the trash pollution in the Mississippi River, would uh, you say? Well, it's it's kind of hidden. The The levees protect the river from us, uh, actually. The uh, They were designed to protect us from the river, but if you think about it, the only place trash can get into the river is at uh, select places, the, the few large cities, uh, Memphis, um, Helena, Greenville, uh, Vicksburg, Natchez, New Orleans. Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge, of course. Of course, you, that's a totally different river down there. Yeah. But um, so in the vicinity of those cities, you'll see a, a little bit of trash floating, uh, but not much. And uh, I've had... Uh, biologists from uh, working in the Missouri River, the Ohio River, different rivers up north that have I've had out here. And one of the things they've noticed when they're out on the river with me, they'll say, where's the trash? Because their rivers are lined with trash. And uh, it's there. You just can't see it. And the river eats it. Once it gets into the river, this is such a huge river and so much sediment and so much water that it tears it apart, buries it, processes it processes it now if you go into the back swamp of say the yazoo the lower yazoo the drainage from the delta you'll go in there and you'll see bottles everywhere you'll see refrigerators uh, <laughs> uh ice chest uh, you name it it's everything is out there caught in the back swamp it's a pretty nasty situation but again the the back swamp protects keeps that trash from getting into the mississippi river now stuff is moving through there but like i say you just can't see it all right, uh, Stephanie, go ahead. Sounds like something we need to clean up a little. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's The, the plastic trash particularly is a terrible uh, mm-hmm. international problem, worldwide problem. We're going to have to do something about it. We're living in a world of plastic right now. And Stephanie, I don't know if you know that it's a constant effort, and there are a lot of people working hard at cleaning up the Pearl River because it's um it, it's so much more noticeable to the trash when we go on the on the Mississippi River i particularly notice how clean the sandbars are compared to the pearl river the pearl is just litter you know it's it's litter really sea. a constant problem and um the pearl river keepers are doing a wonderful job of taking trash out of there if you go to their website you see though it's mountains of trash but they need yeah. help yeah they do need well, help I recycle religiously, and um, you know, plastic. Um, it's it, yeah, it's gotten out of hand. We we need to get more people recycling. Yeah, and we need to continue to voice our concern about how much packaging um, is on all the merchandise that we buy. There's yeah, so I, much plastic packaging that I don't feel like we need. This is something. If you have any environmental bent at all, quit using plastic water bottles. Get you a, a a permanent water bottle, carry it with you, fill it up, and that would save so much plastic right there. All right, uh, Stephanie, thanks for your phone call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Visiting today with Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, we're talking about the Mississippi River. If you've had an encounter on the river or a story about the Mississippi that you'd like to share with us, please give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can email the show as well. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. In fact, I heard a story on the news recently, I think this week, 
that's uh, in um, the Pacific Northwest that plastic bottles from the 2008 Beijing Olympics are showing up. Uh, and so, I mean, that it's interesting that um, currents and everything, but it also says that this stuff is not going away. I mean, no, it's, that it's just floating around and, and they're having some issues there. I think it was an interesting feature because it was um, an artist who had made these giant sculptures out of the trash that she found. And uh, it was a, it was a very dramatic way to, you know, to, to point out the, the, the issue of, of the plastic that, uh, you know, that is, is certainly a worldwide problem. You know, what brings it home, they're talking about now analysis of our tissues and our bodies. We're full of little pieces of plastic, too, which is probably not the best thing for us, but it's in our bloodstream, which is, I don't, that's a little scary to me. And, I, you know, I think that's one of those things where, you know, what can I do, that sort of thing. But but as Paul mentioned, maybe, you know, cut back on the use of, of those disposable plastic. Uh, because, again, I, the, the story I heard earlier was saying that the one-use plastic items are really what's driving this this mm-hmm. uh, this trash problem. So, Paul, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned that the Mississippi River is engineered, but also some parts are natural. So if you would explain the difference of what that means. Yeah, um, John Ruskey actually came up with the concept of the wild miles. John Ruskey has a canoe business, outfitting canoe business, called Quapaw Canoe Company, if you're interested in never getting out on the river. And getting out on the river in a canoe is just absolutely incredible. A little frightening, but John will take care of you. John and his folks will take care of you, and rivers will take care of you. Um, but um, he, he calls the wild miles from uh, just below uh, St. Louis, I believe, and that's, that's not just the lower Mississippi, but um, down to Baton Rouge. And in that area, like I said, the river is protected from us by levees, and it's pretty natural, except for occasional high ground where you'll see some hunting camps, um, very little agriculture out there. There's a... Um, um, a silo for grain to load barges about every 20 miles. And then the cities, there's just no industry. There's nothing out there. That's primarily because the river level can rise up to 60 feet a year, which keeps, it makes it pretty hard to build a structure out there to keep it there, except for the very highest lands. So um, within that area, we call them the wild miles because you don't see anybody. There's nobody out there on the banks. There's, there's very little activity and uh, you, you feel like you're in an actual wilderness. It's a, it's a great feeling, uh, very large vistas, the, very much like being on, the, on uh, uh, one of the islands on the Gulf Coast uh, because you have so much horizon out there, or even being on, a, on, a, on, on the ocean if, when you're on the river because you have a huge horizon, and it feels very wild. Now, of course, there are, there's barge traffic. This is... Uh, one of the primary reasons our nation is so prosperous is because of this river, which bisects the most productive and largest agricultural area on this planet is is uh, in the Mississippi drainage. And, of course, we got this incredible transportation system, which is the cheapest transportation for bulk transport is is by barge. Um, so it, it's it's you do have the barges out there, but they're seasonal. Uh, they're periodic, and common sense will keep you safe from them. All right. So again, earlier we also mentioned uh, the the least turn, and this is a little bit of a success story. So if you would uh, tell us about the bird, what the situation used to be, and and how the situation is improving. Yeah, this is very much a success story. The the least turn was 
listed as endangered in 1985. And at that time, there were fewer than 2,000 birds known. Uh, it's called the interior lease term because uh, it nests on, on uh, large open river banks, uh, river sandbars, river islands, uh, within the interior basin, and all the way up to almost to Canada, up in the Missouri River drainage. That used to be a very wide uh, system, a lot like the lower Mississippi is now. Um, lots of exposed sandbars and things. The the uh, modification, particularly the Missouri River, had a probably a pretty well it had a big impact on everything. But um, the river, instead of a, a, a multi a braided river, became a, a single channel in a fixed channel. Um, so you, you lost your big sandbars. You lost the types of habitats that the birds would go on. So that's why it was listed at the time. It was seen as, as declining. There were fewer than 48, uh, well, I think there were exactly 48 nesting colonies known when the species was listed. Well, what we didn't realize was how resilient this little bird was and how tough it was. And, and we also didn't understand at the time that it does prospecting work when it's, it's young prospect. They go out looking for places. They don't breed. They don't breed for two years. It's a very long-lived bird. It lives over twenty years, and um, uh, which is unheard of in a small bird. An eagle, maybe large pelican, doesn't even live that long. Uh, so this is really unusual. Doesn't it? Doesn't nest for the first two years, and it'll prospect. It'll fly all over the place. Very very strong flyers, and. Um, um, looking for places to nest, food sources, open areas. So what happened was certain things happened along with the impoundment of the Missouri River and the problems there. The birds, prospecting birds, they found the Rio Grande where they didn't nor normally nest. But what had happened is they built these huge reservoirs out there, which would dry up and go down. You'd have a water source, you would have fish and you'd have all this bare area, desert area for the birds to, to nest. So the bird actually began expanding its range into the deserts of the southwest U.S., uh, wherever they built a reservoir, and into Colorado, some of the reservoirs in Colorado, plus large coal mines, uh, coal fields, if they were anywhere near water, the waste areas, uh, industrial sites, sand mines, uh, all kinds of places like that. So today we've gone from less than 2,000 birds to close to 20,000 birds. And we're almost at 500 nesting sites now. So it's been a remarkable improvement. And also what we found was that management of places like the Lower Mississippi River, um, you can actually expand the breeding season of the birds through engineering. You can create islands, you can protect islands. You can you can definitely benefit the birds through creative management, and the Corps has done a whole lot of this creative management in the last 20 years, and now they're making this a part of their regular routine uh, maintenance. It's become a part of their uh, navigation and uh, flood protection programs that they actually create this habitat, maintain the habitat for things like not only the least turn, but also for uh, pallid sturgeon and endangered fish and endangered mussel and the myriad numbers of migratory songbirds that come through the, that depend upon the Mississippi River, along with fishes, everything you can imagine benefits from this type of management. 
All right, we need to take one final break this hour. We've got Jim and Madison on the line who's holding for us. Jim, we'll get to your call after this break. Also got a couple of email messages to share with you as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We'll be back to wrap up the program after this, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour, hour is Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. If you miss any of today's program, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast app or the MPB Public Media app. Uh, also, we've been talking today about the Mississippi River. We've got a caller to get to, and it is Jim in Madison. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Uh, I missed a few minutes of the show, so if this is repetitious, please stop me. But in the latest issue of National Geographic magazine, there's a really is interesting, fascinating, really, a uh, photographic essay about a recent LIDAR study of the Mississippi River, and it shows uh, what they've published was the part of the river from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to Donaldsonville, Louisiana, and it shows in, in color-shaded detail the contour not only of the land adjacent to the river, but the river bottom itself. It's really a fascinating photographic uh, study if you're interested in seeing that sort of thing. Yeah, I've missed that issue. I, I, I really want to see it. A lot of people have pointed it out to me. And I'm actually working now. I've been working for a little over a year with um, a team out of NASA. They're, they're putting up a, a new um, satellite in a few years. And it'll have all the latest technology, things I, I, I can't even understand. I can't explain it to them. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just out there taking pe- people on the river. But they, they, they had a something that I'd never heard of, Jim. It, it was a land-based LIDAR that you can set up on a tripod. And wow. it takes a 360-degree view. I mean, from, the, from the, the, the only spot not covered is the actual place where this thing is setting. And it, it is absolutely amazing. And they're using that to, to ground truth these flights, these LIDAR flights that they're doing, that they created those maps that you're looking at. So all of this stuff is getting better and better and better. We were even trying to measure the difference in elevation between one side of the river and the other. You know, as the current sweeps around, the the water kind of shifts over a little bit. It might be millimeters, but the, the fast side of the river theoretically will be a little higher than the slower side of the river because right. the water's piling up. And... Um, they were telling me we were measuring that difference. I, I, I couldn't see it, <laughs> but I was running the boat. <laughs> well, somebody's got to drive. <laughs> hey, Jim, thanks for your call this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with Paul Hartfield from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, talking about the Mississippi River. Just a couple of minutes left in the show. Uh, here's another question that we got. Uh, Richard from Natchez left this question, asking, why do sandbars collapse after a flood in the river near Natchez? Yeah, that's uh, something that anybody that uses the river needs to be aware of. If you get a really low gradient um, bar, and well, first, let me put it this way. After floods, floods redistribute everything in that channel. Things just disappear. But what they also do is carve them. 
And so you can get these large uh, sandbars that used to be there, and then they might not be as big today, and they're they're flat, and they look completely safe and incredibly stable and dry. And you walk up to the edge, and that edge is actually the edge of a 40 or 50-foot-tall underwater cliff of sand. And this is what led to a lot of the drownings back in the past of kids playing out there, is they would walk out on these things, the uh, you'd have a little landslide that'd be caught in it, and when you have hundreds, if not thousands, of tons of sand pouring down into the water, it creates suction, and will drag you right with it. So stay away from the edge, particularly if it's a steep edge, particularly if it's a very low slope, low gradient sandbar, because that's generally where these things form after a flood. Eventually, they will stabilize, and you'll be completely safe out there. All right. Uh, a term that you've used is the lower Mississippi. And so if two things, if you would sort of uh, where does the lower Mississippi begin and is it differentiated because of the the makeup? What what why would we have an upper and lower Mississippi, I guess? Yeah, the the um, lower Mississippi begins where the Ohio River enters the river at the confluence of the Ohio River. Above that, we call the Upper Mississippi River. And even we even break it down even farther from the mouth of the Ohio to St. Louis, that 200-mile reach, we often call, the people that work out there, we call that the Miss, Middle Mississippi River because it's even different. So what you've got is the, the, the true Upper Mississippi River that begins in Lake Atasca that flows down. It, it receives a, a number of tributaries, but it's a very rocky, high-slope river that now is completely impounded with locks all the way up to uh, Minneapolis. Dams, dams. Right. locks and dams for to get that river traffic all the way up there over the what used to be rocky shoals and even small waterfalls that lined the upper Mississippi River above St. Louis. And then once it hits St. Louis, what you've got is the Missouri River coming in, which brought a lot of wa- more water and sediment to the river, and it increased the size quite a bit. And then below St. Louis, when... Uh, it, it's still a fairly high-slope river, but there are no dams below St. Louis. And then you hit the Ohio River, and that's the bulk of the water. Most of the flow uh, in our part of the river down here comes out of the Ohio River Basin. That's where the water comes from. So I think we get uh, probably three, four, five times more water coming down the Ohio than you do from the from the upper Mississippi River. So, so that's when it really gets big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lower river's bigger, and it does have... The, the nutrients from yeah. the Midwest. So that's a, a thousand that's a thousand miles of river. Our our part of the river, what we call the Lower Mississippi River, from the Ohio to the Gulf, is a thousand miles. All right, got about a minute or so left. Um, was the river named after the state, or was the state named after the river, the or do we know? <laughs> uh, no, the state was named after the river, and the river was named. Uh, it was interpreted that I can't remember the exact words, but Mississippi was thought to mean father of rivers or Great River, or something like that. It's a a Native American language. I'm not sure which Native Americans use that, because there were a bunch of them down here when the French came. But it stuck as the Mississippi father of rivers, and then that's what the state was named after the river. All right. Uh, Might want to put you on the spot here for a minute, but if someone wanted to learn more about the Mississippi River, are there sites online, places online that you think are good reference points? and. yeah, there's a ton of stuff online. Uh, the the most one of the most interesting things, if you're really interested in the river, you want a detailed uh, look at it. Um, John Rusky has published, uh, and a lot of us c- contributed to it. The the River Gator, 
Uh, it's a, a play on words. It used to be a periodical called The Navigator, which brought settlers into this area. And it was a set of maps and a description mile by mile of the river theoretically at that time in the 18, early 1800s. So John took that and, and with the play on words, he, he called it a river gator. And he's got, I think it's over a million words. It's a huge site. Just Google River Gator and you'll get all this. It'll tell you uh, the conditions of any place on the river at high, uh, medium, and low water. And, um, and lots of great photographs. Lots and lots and lots of photographs and complete maps, too, of every stretch of the river. He's, it's just a real resource for anybody who wants to recreate out there on the river or who's just interested in the river. There's a lot of lore, navigation lore, safety uh, recommendations and on and on. It's just a great resource. All right, great. That's going to wrap us up for today. Uh, Creature Comforts is a production of MPB Think Radio. And we'd like to thank our producer, Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Li- Libby Hartfield and I guess Paul Hartfield, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. <laughs>